0: Ruth chapter four. Everybody got their Bibles open. Like Taylor said, uh, there's only four chapters in Ruth, and so after this, there's nothing left to teach. Um, We're in the ninth inning, and uh, and so um, I uh, I'm excited. I hope that you guys have learned a lot so far. Um, I uh, I really do pray for you guys. Um, I I don't pray for you individually. That would take me like months. But, uh, but I, just, I just pray for this community of people that when we do, um, when we do go through um, a series like this, that God speaks to you in a way that's transformative. My hope is always that the Holy Spirit plants some type of seed inside of your brain that creates some systemic change in your life, some structure um, that leads to a new way of living. And um, I just think when we get in rooms like this, that the Holy Spirit speaks in those really profound ways, and if that seed takes root, it opens up all kinds of doors. Um, I've also been borderline terrified as I've gone through this because I was like huh, I, I think that somebody in this room is going to go download like a Tim Keller series and they're going to get like a real teacher who teaches through the book of Ruth and then you're going to find out there's all these big themes that I've been missing and I never connected these dots and all that type of stuff and, and I wanted to explain that a little bit because the reality is um, I really think that God speaks very specifically to people. And I'm just really trying to share that with you guys. The things that I think have jumped out to me and what God's revealed to me. Uh, ancient rabbis used to say that scripture was like a, a gem that had many faces and as you turned it, it would look different but it was always a gem. And I think that's, uh, that's always like a, an important thing that I keep in mind as I read the scriptures that different times in life there are certain things that are gonna jump out that we never saw before. And I hope that that's happened to you. I mean, most of us probably grew up with like a felt board understanding of Ruth, right? It was like the typical princess story where the prince comes and saves her from the dragon or something like that. But we're looking at things that turn that all upside down. You know, Ruth is the real hero here, right? She makes a a rash vow and commits to her mother-in-law, and that leads her on one of the greatest adventures of her life. And and then we've got other themes that we've learned in Chapter 2, how character attracts character, all kinds of things like that. So today will not be any different. Um, today, uh, I'll give you the you know the punchline. Here's a spoiler alert. Uh, Ruth and Boaz get married in chapter four and they have a baby. <laughs> so there you go, that's the book of Ruth, people. Um, but I think there's so much more than that. And I think I don't want to close this book without um, seeing something really important. And I think what I want to find here is What what do we do when we come across God-given opportunities and special moments where we can walk in something and change the future? That's what I see in chapter four, and that's what I want to read. Um, uh, I'm a fan of Craigslist missed connections. Have you guys ever seen Craigslist missed connections? No? Okay, good. Just me. All right, this should be very relevant. Okay, so listen, um, Craigslist is, everybody knows what Craigslist is, right? All right, come on. Yeah, at least 10 of you. Awesome. Okay, cool. Craigslist is an online classifieds where you can sell stuff. Um, before, like, Facebook Marketplace existed, um, and after newspapers existed, Craigslist was like the millennial version, the thing that existed in the middle. Um, also, on Craigslist, besides just selling things, you can also post. Um, in their misconnections category and misconnections is basically um, you know if there was an instance where you cross paths with somebody that you would love to meet again but you didn't get a chance to get their name or their number or something you can post on Craigslist classifieds misconnections in the hopes that maybe they'll go on misconnections they'll find the story that you've written and then they'll connect with that and you guys will be able to somehow get in touch. Does everybody understand the concept? So I'm a fan because these are almost like poetic love stories. Can you throw the first one up, Dave? Uh, this is just a really good example of a misconnection. Misconnection, that's M4W, is man for woman. So this is a guy who's looking for a girl, right? I saw you on the Manhattan-bound Brooklyn Q train. I was wearing a blue striped t-shirt and a pair of maroon pants. Good call, maroon pants. You were wearing a vintage red skirt and a smart white blouse. What girl wouldn't like that compliment? We both wore glasses. I guess we still do. (laughs) You got on at the cob and you sat sat across from me, and we made eye contact briefly. I fell in love with you a little bit, in that stupid way where you completely make up a fictional version of the person you're looking at and fall in love with that person. But still, I think there was something there. Doesn't that just warm your heart, right? And if you scrolled through Craigslist misconnections, you would see story after story after story after story of this. Here's one of my favorites that I've ever come across. To the girl who attempted a breaking and entering this morning. Hi, I'm the guy whose house you tried to break into this morning around 9.30 a.m. in Moore on Gale Street. (laughs) Our conversation was short. You only said, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, as you saw me staring back at you through the door blinds. Still, I feel we made a good connection. Separated by only inches, the door and the two locks you were trying to pick. I gave you 15 minutes to make your getaway. You're welcome, BT-dub. I don't know if you were with a professional crew, but please don't try to break into my house again. I'd hate to shoot your cute, freckled face. However, if you're up for a legal encounter, I'm game. The reason that like there's something so endearing about misconnections is that really, as part of just the human experience, with, we identify with this idea that there are moments in life that, you, that come and then you never get them back again, right? And the misconnections is this idea that maybe there's a chance that I can somehow redeem that. I was a little too scared. I was a little too shy. She was a little too far away. But maybe there's a way that I can do it again. Um, and, uh, and sometimes, you know, those stories work out, but for the most part, it's generally just a tragedy. It's kind of like a life that goes missed. Uh, you, don't get to re- you, you don't really get to redeem that. I think um, Harriet Tubman said something that always stuck with me. Uh, Dave, can you throw that quote up just so I'm not reading off the paper? Harriet Tubman said, the bitterest tears shed over graves are for words left unsaid and deeds left undone. We all have that feeling. We all know what it's like to have... Um, the regret of opportunities that were given to us, but, but instead of walking in them, we decided to walk away from them. Um, we intuitively know that opportunities shape us, that really it's the opportunities and what's, it's what you do in the moments when opportunities are presented to you that will define the person that you become. Isn't that right? Um, with that in mind, I wanna read chapter four from probably a very different perspective than it's usually read. I'm gonna start. Um, I'm going to start in Chapter 4, but let me just give you a little bit of context of what happened in Chapter 3, because I don't really know what Bill did with you guys last week, but I don't think that he did Chapter 3. Here's what happens in Chapter 3, to make a long story short. Ruth proposes to Boaz, and that's right. You got the names right in that. The girl proposed to the woman. So if there's any girls in the room who are kind of waiting on a proposal from somebody that they've been with for a while, you have biblical and theological grounds (laughs) to at least nudge them right now. Um, uh, Ruth proposes to Boaz and she basically just calls out this thing and she says, hey, listen, you're one of the kinsmen redeemer and you have, the, you have the ability to marry me, to take me and Naomi and care for us and to provide an heir for Naomi's deceased husband and continue her family name. Will you do it? And Boaz says, I want to. The only problem is this. There's somebody who's actually a closer relative who has the right to do that first. I need to talk to him tomorrow. With that context, here's chapter four. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the redeemer of who Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. I want to stop right there, and just this word, friend. Um, it's an interesting, interesting Hebrew word there, and it's probably better translated in our day as so-and-so. The author has chosen to, to make sure that this person renamed nameless. Boaz knows who he is, it's a relative of Boaz, it's one of his closest relatives. But in here, the author chooses to use the name so-and-so. He says, turn aside, so-and-so, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 of the men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. A whole lot of sitting down going on. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. How many people in the room know a Kinsman Redeemer? Anybody got a friend who's a Kinsman Redeemer? No? Yeah, that's right, because there's not many around anymore. Um, And I think that not many of us probably know exactly what a Kinsman Redeemer is, and so in instances like this, what I do is I go to a commentary and I find out what a Kinsman Redeemer is, and then I share it with you so you don't have to. So here's everything that I know about a Kinsman Redeemer at this point. Basically, when God God brought Israel into the land of Canaan, and they actually became the people of Israel, every family was parceled out a piece of land that they would own forever. So two things that were very important to the nation of Israel was the land and the family that existed on the land. And as your family grew, you would parcel out the pieces of the land that you were given. And this would just go on and on and on. The thing about Israel is you could never really sell your land permanently. So every family always had land, and that land was passed down for all of time. For the rest of eternity, that land was their land. Now think about it, the only way that that system breaks down is if somebody can't have a kid, right? Because who is left to inherit the land? And so, in instances like that, God actually built something into the Hebrew law that, that was designed to make sure that that didn't happen. And it all revolved around this idea of the kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer was a person who would step in an instance. Let's say there was a husband and a wife that didn't have an heir to inherit the land, and the husband died. Kinsman redeemer would be a close relative, probably a brother, maybe a cousin or something like that. And they would step in, and they would marry the wife. And and together, they would produce an offspring. Here's how the transaction would work. If you were a kinsman redeemer, you had to buy the land that your brother or your cousin or whoever owned, you had to take on responsibility for the wife and whoever came with her. Then you had to have children with her. You had to raise those children. And then once they were old enough, you needed to turn everything back over. You understand? So the kinsman redeemer, I think, in church world, I don't know if you, like, you feel this way, but kinsman redeemers looked at it as like, a great thing, right? But really, like it's not fun to be a kinsman redeemer, right? <laughs> it's like a bad investment for sure. And honestly, the Bible's full of stories who, of people who cut... Cu- who tried to, like, shimmy their way out of the responsibility of the Kinsman Redeemer. It's actually interesting to see that Boaz has to talk to this guy. Naomi and Ruth have been in town for a while, and there is a Kinsman Redeemer who is actually not fulfilling his obligations to them. right? For some reason, this is, like, not happening. But obviously, the two things that pop out um, when you think about what a Kinsman Redeemer actually is, the first thing that pops out is if you're a Kinsman Redeemer, it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of money, You invest a lot of yourself, and then once it's done, you just give it all back. There's no benefit to you. The other really cool thing about being a kinsman Redeemer is that it's unbelievably close to the heart of God, for His vision of a nation, and for your purpose in the world. So, with that in mind, let's look at the story that we're reading again. You have Boaz. He, he walks into town, and he basically approaches this guy, and he says, hey, I want to talk to you about something. Naomi's back in town. You know there's a field available that her husband used to own. Do you want to buy it? And the guy goes, yeah, sure, I'll buy it. In his mind, he's thinking, this is a great deal. Like, well, I can just get this, uh, I can get this property. Naomi's too old to have kids. And then once I'm done, I'll have twice as much land as I started with, and I'll leave that as inheritance to my children. And then Boaz says, oh, by the way, if you do buy the field, you also get... Ruth, with it. And you have to marry Ruth, you have to have children with her, you have to raise them, and then turn the field over to them. Do you want to do that? And then the kinsman redeemer goes, uh... <laughs> and he says, no, listen, you're next in line. Why don't you redeem it? He doesn't want to spoil what he calls his inheritance. Um, in, a, in a phrase, he basically says this, no, it'll cost too much. For me, the reason that that jumps out to me is, honestly, I think that this decision is basically right at the center and the crux of the Christian faith. I honestly think for most of us, this is really the question that we face every day. I was at a wedding um, two days ago, and, uh, and I was talking to a guy. And he wasn't really like a person of faith, but he was asking me a lot of questions, and we eventually got around to talking about faith. And so he was, um, he was somebody who would typically be on like, the outside of religion, and so it would probably look like, very much like a system of works, right? So it would just be like, do these things, get these outcomes. That was kind of like his mentality. And so he's asking me, he's like, well, why do you do it? Like, what do you, like, there's no, what's the fun in that, right? And I was like, to be honest, there's no fun in that. Like, that whole system is like, that uh, drives me up a wall. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't even know God while I believed that religion was like that. I mean, I was born into this faith, right? And while I was on the outside looking in, like there comes, there, there's a time when you just don't understand it. And it really just does just look like maybe just like performance and doing the right things to get a certain amount of outcomes. But I remember there was a certain point in time when I read through, um, I was reading in Romans, and I, and I read where, uh, where Paul said, you know, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And I remember thinking, what? Like... The righteousness of God, Abraham just believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness? Well, what did Abraham believe? And as I'm kind of like, well, so then I'm like, okay, let me thumb back to Genesis 12, and I'll start the story. So I start reading through all of Genesis 12. And what did Abraham believe? Well, the first thing that he believes is God says, I want to take you to a land that I will show you. And Abraham goes, okay, I'll go. And over the course of the next, like, 15 chapters, you're just watching Abraham go from place to place to place to place and believing the promises of God and walking in where God has told him. And so I was trying to explain my faith to this guy, and I was basically like, listen, I don't really think that you get it. Like, it's, this isn't, whatever I'm in is not a system that is based around works. It's really just, in the most simplistic terms, it's just that I really believe that God wants to take us from here to there. And doesn't that make sense when you actually think about it in your own life? Like, isn't it intuitive? Isn't there something in the human heart, something deeply embedded within us that knows that we're not supposed to be who we are right now? And everybody yearns to be this thing over here. And and almost everything that we do is basically just trying to figure out ways to close this distance. Agreed? Yeah. That's what we're all after. And the reality is, the life of the Christian faith is basically just saying, "Listen, God has everything you need to take step after step after step after step to becoming exactly the person that you always thought you would be." Here's the only catch: it's going to cost a lot. And that's the idea: is like when you, the the whatever it takes for us to get from here to over here. If it was easy, everyone would just do it, but the reality is it's, it tends to cost us something. I don't know what it looks like in your life, but I can give you a couple specifics of what it looks like in mine. I know that like in my life, one, some of the things that it's cost me is some habits. Some habits that are very, very hard to break. Some other things that it costs me is some security. Security and comfort and all the things that go along with that. Another huge thing that it cost me is pride, the idea that I have to lower myself. And you probably have more and more and more. I'll talk about those kind of specifically. When I talk about habits, um, a lot of people are stuck in patterns and behaviors that, um, that just tend to grip us, right? And why do we go to those patterns of behavior? I mean, I remember Augustine saying that sin is always looking for the right thing in the wrong place. There's something in us that really needs something to be fulfilled, and we're always trying to figure out how can we actually get that. And so one of the things that we easily, easily fall into is some type of toxic habits or behaviors, some people even call them addictions, that you just can't get out of, but they're almost like your guilty pleasures, they're the things that make you feel safe, the things that make you feel comfortable, the things that de-stress you, the things that you believe will at least save you in the temporary. When I say this, there's probably some things popping up in the back of your own heads, yeah? Here's the thing about habits. I remember somebody describing this to me. They said, you know what, the strange thing about habits, toxic habits that you keep for a long period of time, the thing is all of us know when we actually talk about them that they're really just prisons, right? There's no freedom. When you actually are a slave to the habit, there's no such thing as freedom. But you become so ingrained in the habit that it becomes such a part of your everyday life you start to not see it anymore. And so while it's a prison, what you begin to do is you begin to put carpets on the floor and you begin to hang up pictures of your family and you get a pretty nice sofa. And pretty soon it starts to not even look like a prison. But here's the thing, make no mistake, you are in a prison. And that's the reality, is like when you are chained to toxic habits, you are existing in a a place where you are not free. And, and, And the problem with this is that Um, And is that there's so much that you miss out on in life on the other side of that habit. I think for a lot of people in this room who struggle with some type of toxic habit, you are one toxic habit away from fully becoming that person. You're one toxic habit away from making the first huge step towards whoever God designed you to be. I think about this in terms, not of like, hey, kick the bad habits, but what's the opportunity? The reality is it costs something, right? Kicking a habit is really hard, but what's the benefit? I truly believe for everybody in this room, you want to spend yourself on something that has meaning and purpose, like Boaz did. He was, ex- he was excited to walk in, to walk in a kinsman redeemer role, to have fulfillment and joy in actually being able to be used by God for his purposes in the world, the way he designed things. I think the same of us in this room. When you think about a habit, what is it holding you back from? I always think of this. I see kids here, you know, in their teens or something like that. And I see them walking around, and I know a lot of them, well, some of them, don't really have, like, a father figure in their life. And it, like, breaks my heart. And I see so many men here who are so capable, so strong. Like, you've got so much to give. But I just feel like, for some of you guys, you're one bad habit away, and that kid is going to run around this church for the next 10 years, and you're going to miss the opportunity to be that father figure in his life, because you can't kick one silly little habit. See, the thing is, it costs something, it hurts to kick a habit, but I really, really believe the reality is we want to spend ourselves, and there's joy in that, and God, unlo- God can unlock that if we're willing to give a habit to him. Um, when I think about security, Um, This is probably the number one enemy in the room for a lot of people, right? Americans are amazing at building security into their life. We're like experts. We've got insurances for all types of things. I've looked at pet insurance, and I'm like, geez, man. Like, I've been to countries where they can't, like, the idea of insurance existing is, like, absolutely crazy. And I'm like, yeah, this little chihuahua has an insurance premium of, like, $160 a month. Like, we've got everything covered, everything taken care of. We, um, we are, uh, as Americans, security is just such a fundamental part of the way that we view the world. And here's the thing. I really do think that it's ingrained to us as something that's reasonable and good. But so many times security is really the opposite of what the faith journey is with God. A lot of times what the faith journey looks like is God's gonna, God's gonna pull you out to areas where you actually fear what's gonna happen next, and you'll actually put yourself in an area of vulnerability and compromise, but I think that's where freedom happens. I had, um, I had an experience with this where in the beginning of the year, I really felt very strongly um, that God was calling me to give what I would give at the end of the year at the beginning of the year in faith. I don't recommend that anyone else do that, just FYI. <laughs> it's just a silly thing between me and God. You do your own thing. Um, but, that was, uh, but that was something I felt like that he was specifically calling me to do. And there was another thing um, attached to that. He wanted me to really, really uh, narrow down the organizations that I gave my money to. And then when I did, wherever I gave my money, I would also have to give my time. And so that was actually a hard thing to do because some of the places I support, I don't really have a way of giving my time. And so I th- a lot of you guys in the room are familiar with Water is Basic. I love what they do. And I wanted to support it, so I gave my money, and I was like, God, you figure out a way for me to give my time, because I can't drill wells in South Sudan. I don't really know how to do anything like that. Two weeks later, Steve Ruiz, um, the founder of Waters Basic, called me and said, Michael, we've been thinking for a long time about inviting you onto our board. Would you like to join? And I was like, Steve, that's amazing. That's such an answer to prayer. I was looking for an opportunity to be able to give myself, and then here you are. And he was like, okay, cool. Yeah, there's one catch to being a board member. You have to actually go over to South Sudan with us in June. Do you want to do that? And I was like, ah, let me check my calendar. And I'm telling you, like, I had a smile on my face the whole time, but going to South Sudan was one of the freakiest moments that I've had in my life. Before that, I didn't really ever feel like my actual life was in threat. But the instability of being there was, um, was crazy. It was like something I've never experienced before. Here's the flip side, though. The life that I experienced and the reality, you know, the, the perspective shift and what God had me walk into in being in South Sudan, I will be forever changed. It costs something. It cost the money that I gave and it cost the the sense of security that I have living in America but the reality is it opened up so so many dimensions. I think some of you guys in this room, you guys have an unbelievable amount of resources and wealth that you sit on, and there are people that are right next to you who are the exact opposite. We're all in here together. Here's what I always think about. There are people that I know who are in um, dire financial straits and they're praying and they're believing that God is good and he's somehow gonna come through. And then there are people here who are millionaires who are just building their 401k higher and higher and higher. Do you realize that you could be the answer to prayer for the person who's literally at the end of their rope? It's going to cost you something, but don't you want to spend yourself in that way? Um, Another huge one for me is pride. Uh, I was woken up two times um, in like a nightmarish dream uh, this year. I don't really wake up when I sleep. I just kind of sleep like a rock and I was woken up two times in like a cold sweat, and both of them were dreams that I had, and they both revolved around relationships that needed to be restored in my life. And I took it serious, and I basically worked on two specific instances of these two relationships. One, I started by writing a letter, and the other, I started by um, you know, having a conversation. I'm not gonna, I don't even know if the letter did what it's supposed to do. I don't know if the conversation really went as well as I think it was supposed to go, but I, be, I made the beginning steps towards restoring what those relationships were. And the reality is like those broken, that, those areas of broken relationships in my life working towards restoration was life-giving to me, and now where it's at with those people has become life-giving to them. I think about for some of the people in this room, relationships that we have, um, there's, there's a lot of brokenness, right? Like, you can't get through life without breaking people's hearts, without, um, you know, uh, messing people up, um, and without, like, taking advantage of people. It's actually just part of, like, the way we live. But I do, do really, really think that, that God has something in there if we're willing to lower ourselves, if we're, if we're willing to um, go against the grain of pride, to be able to look at somebody and say, I was wrong in this instance, and I want to apologize for that. I shouldn't have said what I said back then. I, um, I really think that I didn't approach this the way, I don't think I heard your side of the story, I wish I could have seen you better. Those open doors to restoring relationships. I always think of this, you, um, you, obviously it takes two to tango in any relationship, and so there's multiple people responsible. And if you play the game of pointing the fingers, pointing your guns at each other, and saying it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault, I don't really think that that relationship will ever be restored. I'll tell you what I have seen. The second that you decide to lay down your guns, to lay down your pride, and to basically just say, here's where I do know I was wrong, most of those relationships do not go unredeemed. It's going to cost you something, but don't you want to spend yourself in that way? Um, a little encouragement, because I think like some, some of these things... Well, first of all, because I'm like being a little bit too serious right now. So I want to liven the mood up a little bit. Um, But a little encouragement for you because um, if these are three of your things, more power to you. It's been a pretty hard road for me. Um, You've probably got other things too that I don't even, you know, they're not my experience and I'm not even aware of. Let me encourage you in, some of the, in, in just one specific thing. Let's say that you're like, you don't understand my life. I've got habits that I've been dealing with for 10 years. I can't break them. I am so tied to security. I really can't. I, I have fear and anxiety of the future. And I, I only worry about myself. I don't know how to change. I know I should, but I can't be different. And I've got situations with people where I really can't lower myself. I've been hurt too bad. I don't want to expose myself to that level of vulnerability. Okay then get rid of those big things in your life. Let's just start really, really small. Like, what are the small, small things in life? What are some of the little habits that are a little bit insignificant, but they might mean a lot? I remember one. my mom said that one time the Holy Spirit just spoke to her, don't eat chocolate chip pancakes in the morning anymore, right? It's a little, little thing. But hey, you, you begin the process of letting God walk you on a journey of kicking some habits. Security, all right, maybe you can't give away $10,000 or something like that. That seems absolutely crazy. But you probably can give away 100 bucks, right? And what if you actually sat in prayer and you said, God, can you, can you bring someone along my path? Give me the eyes to see someone who's in need, who could really use this. It would begin to exercise that faith muscle and you start to see the joy of, of what things cost. You actually start to enjoy spending yourself. Or even if there's like broken relationships, and you're like, you got to. Th- I mean, Mike, you have no idea. This is 30 years and we haven't talked to these people. There's no way that that's going to be restored. Okay, that's fine. One of the things that I really like to do is just keep in mind how I use my tongue, the, the ways that I honor people with my words, and the way that I respect people. And here's a really, really key one. Very quick to apologize for something that you've done wrong. There are things that are so insignificant, but when they build and build over time, all of a sudden it's been five years and you guys haven't spoken to each other, right? So the thing that we can handle today is let's be quick to forgive. Those are little things that you can believe in. It's it's ways to spend yourself that I think are absolutely amazing. I love, uh, one of my favorite poems is by Mary Oliver. And I think of this when I have some of these moments. The poem is called Moments. She says, there are moments that cry out to be fulfilled like telling someone you love them, or giving your money away. All of it. Your heart's beating, isn't it? You're not in chains, are you? There's nothing more pathetic than caution, when headlong might save a life, possibly your own. And I feel so strongly about that, that the reality is, like, most of this stuff, it's like, it's geared around other people, of course, Like, these kind of things will have huge impacts for other people, but the reality is unlocking these things, when God presents the opportunities, when he drops the specific things in your path, when he says, I need you to kick that habit, I need you to give those resources, I need you to write that letter, when he puts those things in your path, if you throw yourself headlong into it, you begin to save yourself. The picture that you see over there, you start to take steps in that direction and become who God designed you to be. There's nothing more fulfilling than that. Um, I've, been, uh, I've been doing a pretty, I think, poor job of connecting this series title um, to, like the whole, to some of my messages. Has anybody felt that way? You're like, why is this called the perfectly ordinary story of Ruth? Yeah? Yeah. No, okay, all right, I did a good job. I'll just go home now. Um, no, to be honest, I really do feel like I've been doing a bad job because like I say that this, I call this the perfectly ordinary story of Ruth because I think that Ruth is like the least spiritual book in the whole Bible. Like what you have is basically a bunch of um, mundane moments. Um, there's no prophets and kings. There's no miracles. The voice of God never speaks to anybody. No fire is called down from heaven. Literally nothing spiritual, quote unquote, happens. And that's very similar to, I think, the lives of many of us. Um, how many in the room are a king or a prophet? Some of you guys, some of you more charismatics are prophets, wink, wink. Um, how many people have, have, have seen miracles in person? Or um, how many people have called fire down from heaven? Very few of you have called fire down from heaven. I know, I, I was there. Um, But the the reality is that um, the book of Ruth is so extraordinary because of that, because it basically is like God drops this book right in the middle of everything to tell you that in the mundane moments, in the everyday decisions, in the ordinary lives of people, the decisions they make have eternal significance. And I don't want you to miss the idea, if we look at chapter 4 and we just see these two people having a business conversation of who they, what land they want to take and who they want to marry, make no mistake about it, it's of absolutely eternal significance. And all of the decisions you make about these things in your life, they are absolutely significant. Everything that, all of the opportunities that God brings along our way, quiet whispers to do something, to change a pattern, to make something different, all of it is an invitation to be someone different. Does that make sense? And so when I look at this this perfectly perfectly ordinary story of Ruth, what I constantly am thinking of is, what are, this, what are the things that are coming at me every day? What kind of opportunities do I have that I'm walking in? Am I Boaz in this story? Am I the kind of person who's, who's basically looking at this and saying, where is God moving? I want to go find out and I want to walk in that. Or am I Mr. So-and-so? Am I the person who says, I don't want to walk in that, it's going to damage my inheritance. I want to live a life of security, I don't want to lower myself. I want to stick to the plan. And the reality is, what happens is Boaz marries Ruth, they have a baby, and then over time we know uh, that, that, that that is basically the beginning of, the, of uh, well, you can trace them back to the lineage of Jesus Christ. And so Boaz, in marrying Ruth, would have never known. He enters into the lineage of Jesus Christ himself, and Mr. So-and-so fades into oblivion. Ruth could have never known when she decided to make some of the, you know, when she decides to make her vow to Naomi. How could she ever have known that she was going to go to Israel, that she was gonna go glean in a field, that in that field would be a guy named Boaz, that Boaz then would then negotiate to marry her, that they would get married, that they would have a kid, that two generations later that kid would be King David, and then over time the Messiah would come through that. She could have never known. It's absolutely impossible. But she made mundane, everyday decisions that were perfectly aligned with the will and the heart of God and God weaves a beautiful story out of it. My question for you is, what are the mundane everyday decisions that face you? What are some of the things that you are face to face with today? What are the quiet whispers that God has given you that you know that you need to walk in? And are you willing to take those first steps? Are you willing to take that step here and here and here? Sometimes it's not very extraordinary. There's a story I love about a woman named Susanna Wesley. She's, um, she was the, father, uh, she was the um, mother of uh, Charles Wesley. And, um, and I always am drawn back to this story because there's such simplicity in the way that she lived her life and the way that she embraced her moments and what God gave her and what, and what God turned it into. Listen to this. By the way, background on Susanna Wesley. Two houses that burned down. Her husband was in and out of debt his whole life. She had uh, more than ten children. Half of them died. And she spent... Um, all of her younger years raising children when the reality was she had a mind like nobody else. What she understood theologically and the way she could teach was absolutely amazing but she was just born into the wrong generation. So here she is raising kids and this is what it says. Early in her life she vowed she would never spend more time in leisure entertainment than she did in prayer and Bible study even amid the most complex and busy years of her life as a mother. She still scheduled two hours each day for fellowship with God and time in His Word, and she adhered to that schedule faithfully. The challenge was finding a place of privacy and a house filled to overflow with children. Mother Wesley's solution to this was to bring her Bible to her favorite chair and throw her long apron over her head, forming a sort of tent. When Susanna was under the apron, she was with God and was not to be disturbed except in the case of dire emergency. There, in the privacy of her little tent, she interceded for her husband and her children and plumbed the deep mystery of God in scriptures. This holy discipline equipped her with a thorough and profound knowledge of the Bible. Susanna passed away in 1742 at the age of 73, living long enough to see her sons, John and Charles Wesley, become world-renowned leaders of the global Christian movement. John Wesley is estimated to have preached to nearly a million people in his long, fruitful life. Here's my question. Do you think that John and Charles Wesley didn't notice their mother under that tent every single day, right? She had so little to work with. She had to take care of a bunch of kids. She had no epic decisions to make for God. But she made one firm commitment that she was going to spend her life in prayer. And generationally, what flows out of that is two of the greatest revivalists that the world has ever known. Your decisions, your everyday decisions, matter so much. Um, who wants to hear Bob Gaglion's story? <laughs> um, when I was younger my dad would take us um, to Penn State for my birthday my birthday's in October and it kind of coincided with, um, with homecoming weekend and so like when I was younger it was amazing like we would go we were all like we were young teenagers so we would go to the huge games 100,000 people in the stadium and like you know the cheerleaders would p- paint paw prints on you and stuff like that and we were like homecoming, like in college, we're looking around like, gosh, I can't wait to get here. Um, and we, so, so we would camp, and then we would go to the game, and there was one, um, there was one year where a guy got us pre-game on-field passes. Uh, do you know what that is? That's basically like you get to go on the field uh, before the game, and you get to watch the kickers kind of like kick their practice shots at the field goal, and you get to see like the quarterbacks throw around to the wide receivers and stuff like that, and then after a while you kind of like get off, go back to your seats, and the real game starts. So we had these pre-game passes, and so we go down, it's like me, my dad, I think Steve Smickley, my friend Jamie, who works in the cafe, and a couple other guys. So we've got our pre-game uh, passes, we go down, we're like, this is amazing, we're on the field at Penn State, and like, we're kicking the, kicking the field goals, all that stuff. And then um, somebody goes, all right, everybody with the pre-game passes, you got to get out of here. Now, it was windy that day, and pre-game passes look a lot like normal game passes, especially when the wind flips them over. Uh, to the opposite side, and you can't see them say pregame passes anymore, and so we let the Holy Spirit flip the wind over I'll uh, flip them over with the wind <laughs> and um, and so we ended up like staying on the field. By the way, this was my dad's idea. He is a very strong man of character he's a little lenient at ballparks and stadiums. Um, so we stay on the field, and I mean literally Penn state. Put Penn State football team uh, runs out. Ohio runs out, and we're literally just standing there, like watching this happen. The band comes, and like they're, literally, they're they're going through us, and right next to us, and we're like, "What are we doing here? This is absolutely crazy." So we're so we're on the field, and like nobody makes bigger moves than my dad he we're on the opposite side of the field we're in like a little corner we're feeling like super scared my dad feels none of that he goes over to the other side of the field and pretty soon by the end of the first quarter i see him over here he's standing with the tight ends like six feet from joe Paterno, and he's looking over the guy's shoulder the offensive coordinator's drawing stuff up and he's looking like this i'm like I, i feel like i'm in another planet right now me and my friend Jamie, we're like totally freaked out. Like if we get in trouble, they're gonna throw us in some jail here or something like that. So then we t- We stayed till the end of the game and then we're like, all right, cool. Like we've basically, we've worn out our welcome, it's time to book it. So we get out of there and, and here's basically where we left, here's the rest of the things that my dad did along that journey. First of all, you know when the game's over, everybody runs out who's, you know, a believer, they run out and they pray in the middle. So picture Bob Gaglione running out from Penn State side, kneeling down with all these guys. God, thank you for a great game. We just pray that you will bless these men, blah, blah, blah. He's in the middle of it praying with these dudes in like a, group, a circle of 20. Then the band leaves with one final song, and as they're walking by, he kind of just walks in step with them and goes like this to get into the facilities that they're walking into. So now my dad is underneath in the facilities at Penn State Stadium and he's walking around and he said he had this moment where he got to the locker room and all the guys are going in and he just goes, nah, I can't. <laughs> so here's the kicker. Me and Jamie get a text message. He goes, guys, meet me at the tunnel in 10. Here's what the tunnel is. After every Penn State game, especially when they win, there's a bus that pulls up to the tunnel, and that's the bus that takes the kids, the players, back to their dorms, right? So the players typically run out like in full gear. They hop on this bus, and about 500 to 1,000 people gather around the tunnel to cheer them on. Me and Jamie get this text, and we go, you've got to be kidding me. We run over there about two minutes before players start running out. It's probably like 80 players on the, on the Penn State team. So we see 10, 15 players running out, thousands of people going like this or whatever, and then right there in the middle of it, jogging out with them, is my dad, <laughs> like this, looking around, everybody cheering him. looks just like a tight end or a quarterback or something, right? Here's my point in telling that story. It all, smart, it all starts, I know this is a little bit of a stretch of a metaphor, but I had to tell that story. It all starts with a really, really small decision. We just decide to stay on the field. And then every little decision after that creates a story. And if you draw anything out of the book of Ruth, it's that God takes our everyday decisions and turns them into something absolutely extraordinary. I wanted to end with this. Every day, I feel like we're given sacred opportunities that are disguised as mundane moments. They might even happen today. My prayer for us is that we would be a people who don't miss moments that the Lord puts in our path. I wanna pray that radical, sacrificial love, the kind of love that actually costs something, would be the norm in this community at Calvary. And listen to this, would be our ultimate source of joy and purpose and fulfillment. If there's one takeaway from the book of Ruth, it's this. God will take the sacred decisions made in our ordinary moments Weave them together into an extraordinary story and create a legacy that lasts for generations. That's the perfectly ordinary story of you and me. That's our perfectly ordinary story. Every opportunity, every mundane moment, God calls it sacred, and he wants to lead us to a place to become not people who are here, but people who are here. Not our will be done, but his. And if we do that, I think that's how we become the people that we always long to be.